0: Welcome back to The Young Entrepreneur's Journey with special guest, Sir Martin Sorrell.
1: You've just got to be absolutely relentless and not be pushed off course by events. You, you know, you've just got to keep hammering away. If you think that the strategic insight or thought is right and the structure right, and by structure I mean not just how you implement internally, the structure for you as an individual, you know, you know what 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 it means you know we were, whether i think controlled listed companies where you know this comes back to my cambridge one of the things i got out of cambridge which was you know robin Maris's book on the theory of manager capitalism which just highlighted for me the split between ownership and control i think that is a problem i think you have to unify ownership and control
0: welcome the Young Entrepreneur's Journey, where we take the skills, mindset, and attitude needed to achieve any entrepreneurial endeavor, whether you're just starting out or you're already on your journey. And now, our host, Yasmina Ellens. Hello and welcome back to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast with your host, Yasmina Ellens. And today I have a real treat for you. I am chatting with the wonderful Sir Martin Sorrell, who is currently the executive chairman of digital advertising and marketing company, S4 Capital, but was probably more well known as the CEO of WPP, which he was for 33 years. And he built it from a 1 million pound shell company in 1985 into the largest advertising and marketing services company In the world and throughout this interview sir martin speaks very very openly and very authentically about his journey the interview is a truly great lesson for someone who is looking to gain really powerful in business insights from someone with decades of experience and someone who dominated their industry so more specifically in this interview you will learn about how sir martin got his start in business what it really takes to be successful in business and how the advertising industry has changed over time. You will also learn about why (laughs) retirement is perhaps overrated and also about the importance of persistence and speed. And there, there is a funny quick little anecdote about knighthood in that story as well, which is very interesting. And there's so much more in here. I really hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, I introduce to you Sir Martin Sorrell. It is an absolute pleasure for me today to be interviewing, on behalf of Cambridge University Entrepreneurs, the wonderful Martin Sorrell, who is the Executive Chairman of S4 Capital, which is a global digital advertising and marketing services company, and is also very well known as the former CEO of WPP, which he managed to build into the largest advertising and marketing services company in the world, and is also a very valued and treasured member of Cambridge University Entrepreneurs Steering Committee. So, again, thank you so much for your supports.
1: Haven't, haven't done much to justify that, uh, <laughs>
0: that
1: introduction, particularly in relation to the last item. But anyway, go on. Fair I, I enough. I'll try and do my best.
0: Well, thank you for your time with this interview, regardless. Pleasure. Pleasure. So, my first question to ask you is yeah. what originally got you into the world of business? Um,
1: well, so, so it goes back to my father, I guess. My father was a retailer. Hmm. Um, He, uh, his parents came from, uh, we we think, Kiev, from the Ukraine in uh, 1899, uh, landed here into the east end of London. And my father had to leave school at the age of 13, despite being a a great violinist, uh, well versed in Shakespeare and the Talmud. Uh, But he had to leave at the age of 13 because he was one of six and you had to be an income producing unit for the family. Because my uh, my grandfather and grandmother, my boomer and my zayner, as they would call it in Yiddish, um, were were not exactly wealthy. They were uh, they were immigrants. Wouldn't have got in I, on the point system. They wouldn't have got in today. But uh, in any event, he had to go to to, to leave school, and he became a, I think a, a, what I would call a barrack room lawyer, and then went into retail retail and um, very successful. Managing Director of Retail Division of Industrial Holding Company. And so my roots were very much in watching him you know as a seven day a week um, worker. I mean he we lived in North London, uh, and he journeyed every day to Putney, where the headquarters and warehouses were. Uh, and he did that six days a week. and on the seventh day, you know he would take me to visit stores. Um, and I would see him get his sales figures from his managers, regional managers every Sunday. So, you know, it was sort of uh, inbuilt, I guess, or inbred, or I was not schooled, but uh, I was accustomed. I would go on uh, trips with him on a Sunday to look at stores. He, despite that, he had no architectural background or design background, he he was quite revolutionary in, in the way that he built stores and fitted stores out, very mm. modern modern approach. So really, it was uh, it was born and bred. And his advice to me was, um, you know, find an industry that you uh, enjoy, find a company within that industry that you, you enjoy, build a reputation, uh, not you know. Externally as much, but people understood that you've been successful in building building that business. And if at you know, at age forty or whenever, you felt like starting your own business, you know, start your own business. I think one thing he regretted, and I regretted on his behalf, is he didn't have his own business. He
0: he mm.
1: he always was um, referred referred to being the donkey in the in the uh, traces. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> In the uh, you know, hauling the cart, um, and I and I think that's sad actually because I think he would have been tremendously successful, um, if he but of course never, you know, had a wife got married at a fairly young age. Um, I had a brother who died at birth, so I was sort of the spoiled only child, my father was very keen for me to have the education that he didn't have, um, and I had a tremendous education at Haberdashers, at cambridge at harvard and uh, so i was extremely fortunate uh that he that he he, he did that for me uh, and my mother did that for me so um i, I would say that's it was sort of inbred really I and mean, it was um you know this whole question are entrepreneurs born or are they trained or educated and probably the answer is both actually at the end of the yeah. day but but I had a little bit of both.
0: Mm. And so what then attracted you? Because your father said, okay, pick something you like. So yes. what then my question is, what attracted you to the world of advertising and marketing?
1: Well, I, I you know, I, after I left Cambridge, I went straight to Harvard Business School, which was quite unusual. Mm. Uh, our, our Dean Athos, who was the admissions tutor at uh, HBS, described our class as the most naive at uh, the Harvard Business School I ever had, because it was the time of the draft, the Vietnamese draft, so a lot of Americans would go straight to university to, mm. to graduate school to avoid the draft. So I was pretty young. I, I had done a, 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 a... My summer job was writing... It was in 1966. I I, I, did, I wrote an article for Management Today on graduate recruitment from Cambridge, actually quite funny, Yeah. And um, then and I worked for my father, actually, as a radio and TV salesman and and in the credit uh, approval section on higher purchase agreements for him. Mm. Um, But I I went to HBS and I did a summer with Marks and Spencer. You know, I went I went there and did a couple of surveys for them, uh, research work. And then I went into consulting. I went into marketing consulting in America after HBS but I had to leave because otherwise I would be drafted. My mother wouldn't let me be drafted. Yeah. You know, spoiled Jewish child, you've got to come back home. Um, so I came back home and I went to work for Mark McCormack, uh, who ran a, a, a big IMG, which now are Ari Emanuel and WME own, um, and which was a big sports agency. So managed the affairs of uh, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Jack Nicholas, Rob Laver, people like that. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I, I wanted to do something with my father. I had a brief, brief sort of flirtation with that. And the, one of the sadnesses of my life, actually, apart from the fact my father never started his own business, was that we, we tried to get together and, and build the business, but it didn't work. I mean,
0: uh, despite
1: the, fact that I used to talk. I used to be very close to him and would speak to him. I'm not exaggerating. You know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a day. But that was before the time you know, on a fixed line before the time of mobile phones. We just couldn't um, hit it off from a business point of view. So I, I, I then uh, we tried that, and then I went to James Gulliver. Um, you know, I left Mark McCormack because I wanted to do something with my dad. And then I, I went to James Gulliver. James was a successful entrepreneur in the retail area, and he had made a lot of money. And I was his so-called personal financial advisor, um, really, his gopher. I was his turtle, really. But uh, <laughs> but, but um, we invested in a, a number of companies. We invested in Tatna Rutledge, a sweet company up in um, in Manchester or Liverpool, Liverpool, uh, Liverpool uh, Manchester. And then Sayers Confectioners in Liverpool, and bakery, both public companies. Alpine Holdings, which was a double glazing uh, company. So mm-hmm. we invested in a, a number of companies, and one of the companies we invested in was. Um, Garland Compton, which had been reversed into a shell company called Birmingham Crematorium by Pat Matthews, who was sort of a, an acolyte of Jim Slater. If anybody remembers who Jim Slater was, he was a very aggressive uh, investment banker, so the forerunner of private equity in in a sense, but using the public markets. And Pat Matthews had this thing called Birmingham Crematorium and, and Garland Compton was injected into it. And then the chairman of Garland Compton, Ken Gill, wanted a more creative agency, and so he, the Saatchi brothers reversed their agency into it. And James Gulliver had a stake in Garland Compton, which he promptly sold, actually, funnily enough. He made a terrible mistake by selling <laughs> it when Saatchi was injected into it. Because it was interesting, actually, because the, the result of the transaction, the assets per share sank because Saatchi and Saatchi had no assets. But they had earnings, and the earnings per share leapt, even on the terms of the injection, and the P.E. came down. But James, who was a retailer, had this fixation about net assets per share and freehold property and everything, and and we promptly sold it. It was a disastrous mistake, actually, a disastrous mistake. But through that, I came into contact with the Saatchi brothers, and – they were looking. I, I did consultancy work for them. You know, I had an office in in Charlotte Street. I would go in there every when. Well, I'd be there most days of the week working on James's business. But I would do a day a week on Such. So I got to know the Such brothers, like them. We did some consulting work, and then Morris wanted to find the CFO, and, and you know he, he he went around Fleet Street at that time trying to you know interview. Finance directors of newspaper groups, and most of them, you had to interview before eleven o'clock in the morning. If you forget what I mean, yeah. certainly before lunchtime. And in a fit of exasperation, he said to the headhunter, the guy called Brian Burwash, who got on K and Rogers, he said, um, uh, because Brian couldn't find a candidate. And exasperated, Ma- Ma- Morris apparently said, "You know, I'd like somebody like Martin." And, and Brian said. What have you asked Martin? And, and Morris hmm. said no. Said, Why don't you? I'll, I'll ask him. So that was that was it. And I liked the brothers. I, I liked the industry. Tim Bell, sadly died recently, uh, was a, a real talent. Um, Jeremy Sinclair on the creative side, Bill Muirhead on the account side. I mean, all of them were were great fun. And you were only as good as your last ad and the great thing about the advertising business is there were no barriers to entry so it was like sports Mm. and entertainment you know you're only as good as your your talent and I got involved uh, with uh, Morris I was their finance director for what nine years I think it was in the end Uh, we had a very successful run Uh, I still think that those days in the in the 80s, the late 70s and the 80s, uh, you know, when every week campaign magazine would carry a headline of Saatchi wins a million pounds account, um, yeah. which whether true or not, it was a great headline. <clears throat> and um, a million pounds in those days was a lot of money. Um, it was great. It was great fun. And you, you nothing was impossible, and you could do anything you wanted as long as you didn't get any external credit for it. That's true. But but it was just great fun so I I did what my dad dad said you know find an industry that you like Mm. um, find a company that you like and you know build a reputation which I did do until you know until I was 40 and you know I got the bug I mean 40 is an interesting age it's maybe not the age you know maybe now I mean I'm 75 and I'm still working but you know at that time um, you probably started when you were about twenty. Forty was the midpoint. Yeah. You look back on, on the first twenty years, and you were thinking, "Well, I'm, I'll retire when I'm 60 Yeah. And um, the second, the second twenty years. So that was a, you know, I remember Jeremy Bullmore, who was the chairman of J Walter Thompson, who I met subsequently with, with WPP when we took over JWT in in eighty seven. Um, and Jeremy has been a, you know, a friend and. Advisor for many years, still still at WPP, and you know, he does his three or four days a week. And um, I remember, you know, uh, s- saying to him, um, you know, what what we were we were doing and how we were going about it, and he was a, sort of a great uh, confidant uh, in terms of building building the business. So, um, and you know, we built we built. Uh, I went into um, I left WPP and made an investment in Warren and plastic products and the rest is as history as your introduction says
0: yeah that's I think one really interesting point that you made is you didn't feel like you'd built a reputation until you were forty. And um, one impression that I get is that younger people feel like they want all the success now. They want it all now at the age of like twenty-two, and then they look up at the people who are quite successful and they don't realize how long it actually takes and all of the labor that goes behind that. Well,
1: that's because they look at you know they look at all the examples you know the, yeah. the Zuckerberg. Uh, larry pages and and, and everybody and, and they they look at those and they say jeff bezos i mean you remember you know jeff bezos it wasn't an easy start for him and you mm. know almost almost went belly up i mean it, it's um it's yeah, i think it was ruth porat actually who's now the cfo of google uh who was at morgan stanley i think it was or jp morgan at the time and when bezos did uh, a sort of a rescue convertible. Uh, or rescue rights issue, I don't know, I can't remember exactly what it was, but she was probably responsible for bailing him out of a very difficult situation. So, you know, but there are a lot of young entrepreneurs who've made it very early nowadays. Yeah. And so it's natural, I think, for, to, for for people to be impatient. I mean, just give you another example, I remember I was on the Stanford campus, uh, the the MBA campus, and uh, one of the professors there saying to me, you know, that, that, that the young men and women go... To uh, to Stanford, not to do their MBA, but but to network, you know. That and yeah. you know, it's oh, a yeah. two year program. They're they're off to the races after year. You no, know, the impatience of youth. I mean, with, I mean, thinking about that, you know. In fact, one regret I have probably is not starting a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe I should have got gone off when I was thirty five. But yeah. I had a great, you know. As I say, I mean, Sanchez was really great because. And nine years there, and you literally could do anything uh, with one caveat Was you didn't get any public credit for it, but but you you could. You had total freedom. I mean, as long as what you did was 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 good and successful, you had total freedom. It was a great time, and we you know Mm. great time for the industry. Uh, The industry worked on a commission basis. You know, we got fifteen percent of billings, and whilst in formulation, I remember when we were doing Procter Pampers, you know. the the paper factories were being built in the middle of America and it took a long time to launch the product and we didn't get any commission and we were working hard on the launch before the launch and we didn't get any commission. But when they launched, they launched big. I mean, Procter's tactics at that time, they had a target market share, uh, you know, say we want to get 25% of the market, whatever it is, and they kept on spending until they got to that market share. It was quite an interesting so it was very exciting, and it was a young company, very young management, uh, no barriers. We could do anything. We were very aggressive on acquisitions or aggressive on organic growth, very aggressive on acquisitions. So it was an exciting place. So that probably, that probably limited me um, in the sense that it encouraged me to stay there mm. uh, for a long period of time. And to your point, you know, probably. If I had gone at 35, um, you know, that probably would have been a better thing. But the attractions of Sarchie were substantial. I made, you know, I, I owe the brothers a lot because you know they gave me the opportunity to make a little bit of money. Um, I borrowed 250,000 pounds against my Sarchi stock uh, mm. to to buy into WPP or Wire and Plastic Products, as it was. there. so they they gave me the um, seed corn. For for wire and plastic products and
0: WPP. One question I have for you is: so back when you were at Saatchi and Saatchi, like there were no barriers to entry, you could do anything you wanted. How, since those days, do you think the world of advertising and marketing has changed?
1: Well, the model's changed. I mean, the model that we built at Saatchi. So you know, if I if I think about my three lives so far, uh, you know, sort of commercially, if you like, Saatchi is was about globalization. I mean, in 19, I think it was 1983, Theodore Levitt, Professor Levitt, the famous marketing professor at Harvard Business School, wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review about globalization and its impact. And his thesis was, and he, 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 in 2003, we did a 20-year reprise of his article at Harvard Business School with him. He was still alive. He was dying, sadly, of cancer. But he did admit that he ate the pudding in order to make the point. Then in this article, because I interviewed him on the Twitter, it was very nice, actually. And um, in that article, he said, consumers are going to consume everything in the same way everywhere. I mean, that was the basic thesis. Yeah. Not quite as strong as that, but pretty much like so. hmm. And directionally, that was true. And I remember um, Morris running around uh, to my office uh, on the sixth floor of Charlotte Street. Uh, so sort of was screaming, Eureka, Eureka, I found it, you know, I found our thesis, which our thesis, that was going to be our thesis. So, Saatchi was about globalization.
0: Hmm.
1: And WPP, or Warren Plastic Products, was about the continuation of the globalization.
0: You know, ultimately,
1: we, we expanded into 113 countries, which you don't have to do now. S4 is in 30 countries, and that's sufficient. Maybe we need to be in Germany, but basically you can hub now with technology in a way that you couldn't then. But Sachi about globalization, WPP about the continuation of globalization and the beginnings of tech. I and mean, you yeah. describe S4 as being an advertising and marketing company. Well, it is, but it isn't, because increasingly it's obvious to us that we're more a tech company. Certainly the stock market regards us as being a more a tech company than an advertising and marketing services company. And the the model, as I said before, has now shifted. The... the the and and S four just taking to the third life for a minute is purely about tech. Now mm. the model is shifted the, the 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 wire and plastic products model, the WPPing model, the Omnicom model, the IPG model, the Dentsu, the Havas inside vending model, the the model, the publicist model, is past its sell by date. The the idea that you could build, you know, share by having competing agencies in the same operation, competing brands, I think is now a busted flush. And mm. you know, my view is, frankly, that they should. I'm still a shareholder and the largest individual shareholder in, in WPP, and I think it should be broken up. Its market value is now well below its breakout value by a significant yeah. sum. And ultimately, it will get broken up. It will either get broken up by its management, its board, unlikely but possible, or mm. by an external force, an activist, or a, a PE firm. So, um, but the model doesn't work anymore, because what, clients, yeah. you know, vertical models with, you know, the the idea was probably sort of rooted in the P&G, UNAMI, but detergent models. You know, you had competing mm. detergent brands, and it didn't matter if they cannibalize one another at the margin, yeah. or even at the, because you build market share. That's mm. gone. Clients want... In an age of technology, they want a unitary company, I think. And that's what we're doing at S4. We have four basic principles. Purely digital, because that's where the growth is. A holy trinity model, as we call it, it a first-party data driving the creation of advertising content and pumping it out programmatically. A tagline, faster, better, cheaper, or speed, quality, value, and a unitary structure. And that last point about unitary structure is key. We Mm. want everybody facing in the same direction at the same point in time with one P&L, which mm. clients can, can call on. So, you know, that's that's how I see the progression, you know, from Saji about globalization to WPP about globalization and the beginning of tech. And S4 is purely a tech play. I mean, we're mm. totally focused on top-line growth with good margins, decent margins, and we don't want to be technologically disrupted or disintermediated, so we're not an yeah. antech or um, we're uh, we're in the services layer. We're providing the services. Mm.
0: Yeah, you seem you seem really excited about your work at S four, and so I just want to play devil's advocate for a second and say, right now, if you wanted to be with the wealth that you've amassed, you could be retired. Yeah. So yeah. why why do you keep doing what you do? What what keeps you? Well, I, I, I,
1: I think retired people. I should, this is terrible. Get me into terrible. Topics, <laughs> retired people become vegetables i mean they they, um and and i'm serious i think if you if you lose the stimulation um you know i didn't what were the alternatives when i left wpu i could do nothing you know right i mean i I would get very bored but i could do nothing uh i could do portfolio
0: Mm.
1: you know i could do non-exec but i think that's a horrendous you know, horrendous thing of you know, dipping in and out of things and not really digging into things. Uh, I, I suppose I could have found a private equity firm in some way, shape or form. Uh, but I think that tends to be too short term. But what I wanted to do, you know, and I was intrigued, you know, my departure from, from WPP was controversial and for, for me unpleasant. Mm. And... You know, I, there's, there's, you know, the, looking at WPP, there were elements of it that were growing. You know, overall it wasn't growing, or not as fast as we would like it to be. And um, but there were, you know, if something is zero, there's stuff that's growing, as you know, and there's stuff that's declining. And the growing bits sort of interested me. The growing bits were around first-party data, around digital advertising content. And around programmatic uh, or digital media planning and buying. And I thought if you could put those three together, you know, rather like the election models that you see, yeah. you know, whether it be for referenda or or for election campaigns, you know, I think mm-hmm. clients now are running campaigns that like elections but without an election date. It's twenty-four seven or always on. So the model has changed, it's morphed. Into a very different model. It's not a, you know, you don't create a perfect film from. You use big ideas, but you don't create a perfect film anymore, which takes three or six months to produce in the Nevada desert or wherever it is. You you produce content, you pump it out, you see how consumers react, and then you refine it, and yeah. you you improve you improve it. So it's a different a different model. But I, you know, I coming back to your question, I you know, I couldn't have just sat and done nothing or played golf. Um, you know, I say always oh, say golf is an old man sport. You have to remember, that I started with Mark Cormac and he was he, he managed all the great professional golfers, Palmer, Blair, and Nicholas. Um, so mm. you know, I had the opportunity to, to play golf, but I never found it you know that 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 interesting. I like I, I like cricket, but you need 21 other people to play that with, and a yeah. couple of umpires, and uh, and 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 a lot of an expanse of ground, so um. No, it just, retirement didn't. And then when I left, you know, people said, well, take a rest, take a holiday. And I just wanted to get back on the horse as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, I totally understand. Just having that stimulation, feeling like like you're not on holiday for the rest of your life. Because at some point you just feel a bit like, you know, like, what's my purpose well, you're, now?
1: You're, you're, you're sitting there waiting for the axe to fall. Is, is Exactly.
0: Is, yeah. know, and
1: that's not, not something, so, you know, as I think... Uh, my oldest son said, "You know, I will die in seat one A."
0: <laughs> <So, laughs> I love that. So I, I,
1: I hope that will not be the case. But um, you know, I don't. I don't think I will inhabit seat one A given what's been happening recently, as much as I used to. I think my my travel mm. patterns will be will be changed. But uh, no, I want to stay active, and I see myself. You know, I've got with S four when we started it, which is what almost two years ago. So we're two years in of what is a five-year run, and I've said, you know, after five years, if everybody wants me to stay on and if I'm physically and mentally healthy, I'll do another five, five years. So this could be, you know, something that takes me to my, into my, the beginnings of my 80s, the foothills of my yeah. 80s. Um, and if I'm physically and mentally uh, able, I'll carry on as long as I can. I've seen people, mm. you know, work into their 90s. Uh, You look at Buffett and Munger, Rupert Murdoch, I mean, Sumner Redstone, a very old age. So, you know, I do not think, um, and you see with with Sir Sir Tom Moore, or Captain Sir Tom Moore, that, you know, anything is possible, even if you're 99 or verging on 100. So, you know, uh, ageism doesn't work.
0: Yeah, age is just a number. I love that spirit. Um, Before I ask you my final question, because I do want to be respectful of time, um, throughout your career, I'm wondering, what do you think is perhaps one skill that just really moved the needle for you? Like one skill that you developed?
1: Um, Well, I don't think, prefacing it, I don't think it's brain surgery. (laughs) Um, You know, I don't think... um, you have to be a, a nuclear scientist or a Nobel Prize winner. That probably helps, but I'm certainly not. Cambridge, I got a two-two, but that was in the sixties when a, you know, a t- today a two-two would be the equivalent of a two-one an upper second, or maybe a minor first yeah. with grade inf- with grade inflation. No, okay. I'm, 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 I'm joking. Um, no, so I don't think it's about brain size. I think you know when you get knighted, you have to go to the College of Heraldry and you have to devise a shield and a motto and mine is um, uh, persistence and speed and um, or speed and persistence and I think um, I think those you know, it's not one you know, if you said to me pick one of those two I think agility is the key speed is the key asset that any corporation has to have now and big companies can do it elephants can dance Amazon dances is not the world's most valuable company at the moment. Apple is, but Apple is no different. They dance too. They produce a, a cheap phone at a time when probably coming out of COVID-19, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. And that, I think, will be a, a big success, as an example. But Amazon pivots you know, every quarter. Bezos is spending $4 a billion, billion on hiring 175000 $1 a billion on COVID-19 testing tracking devices, which they could then license to others. I mean, agility is really important. So agility or speed, and then I think persistence. I mean, if you ask me for one quality, um, you know, coming back, it's persistence. You know, n- mm. ne- again, go back to Morrison Charles. You know, nothing, nothing is impossible. Yeah. Um, you know, Rudyard Kipling's quote. You know, whilst others are basically losing their minds. You know, um, those, those that quality is really important so persistence you, you never give up never give mm-hmm. up you, if you feel you have a strong idea or a strategy you know and you believe in it you know despite what anybody says you know the, the, the reject the famous you know, the rejection letters if you've written a book and you send a book in to the publishers and you get 60 rejection letters the 61st mm-hmm. might be yes we'll go ahead so Keep going, keep going.
0: Yeah, that's some really, really great insight, which, I mean, the well, theme... Remember,
1: that... it, seems, <laughs> it seems obvious to me. I don't think it's a particularly great insight, but I think... Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good it's point, so though. Difficult. Yeah, but you know, you get this. We all have our reverses. We all have our ups and downs, and that can happen during the course of a day, a week, a month, a year, mm. you know, a decade. Um, but play the long game you know, play the long game. And, um, you know, it's not over until the fat lady sings, as they say.
0: Exactly. It's, uh, it's the tortoise who wins the race, not the hare. So, um, I'd so, like yeah. to finally ask you, and this isn't the be all end all, this is kind of things that come to your mind right now, but what is, yeah. th- what are three key truths about the entrepreneurial journey that you'd like to share with a young entrepreneur today?
1: Three of them.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: well, I think, you know, you have to have um, certainly strategically, I mean, you can over-intellectualize this stuff. Because there was, you know, amongst the business schools, I think a few years ago, there was a big debate, you know, whether you, strategy was more important than structure and implementation or or implementation, you know, you could, you, as long as you could implement, didn't matter what the strategy was. Now, basically, yeah. I, I think one, one of them would be, understanding, the, the strategic understanding is critically important. Um, now, I was watching a, a webinar with David Bonderman of TBG, and, you know, he, his two fundamental principles were good business, good management. It's the old... He said it was Richard Rainwater who had made this quote, but Warren Buffett's quote about, you know, when a when a good management come into contact with a bad business, the bad business always wins. Yeah.
0: So...
1: So, so, yeah, I think you have to have a strategic underpinning, which that's really important. So that's that's the good business part of it, if you like. Uh, The the management part of it, which also has to be good, structurally, you've got to have the right structure to implement that. You've got to have the right implementation. So I, I look at it in a very, you know, maybe this is HBS. Um, background and case studies and things, but I think you look at it strategically and structurally and then I think the third thing is what I said before which is about persistence if, you, if you've got the strategy right and you've got the structure right um, persistence I mean in this day and age um, you know, being a listed company is that critical, maybe not I enjoy it because I enjoy interfacing with all the stakeholders, whether that be the people inside the company, the clients, um, the share owners, the analysts, the journalists, Mm. government, as much as you do. I mean, you know, having uh, access to or being involved with that, uh, you know, I enjoy, but some other people don't. It depends on your personality. But I think getting the strategy right, getting the structure right, um, and then and then being persistent about it no never giving up those are the three things I think that are, that are you know being relentless in implementing that strategy and that structure
0: and yeah.
1: never and never um, don't let the day-to-day stuff push you off strategy you mm-hmm. know I always remember um, it was Gordon Brown uh, who said, um, we we're talk- talking about the difference between politics and business. And he said, Well, you know, when you're in politics, when you go to bed at night, when you wake up in the morning, you know, everything's changed. You never know what's going to happen when you wake up in the morning. Well, yeah. actually, running a business on a much different scale is exactly like that. When you go to bed at night, particularly now, you never know what's going to, I'm going to say, hit you, what's going to come at you the following day. So things are always changing at a very rapid break, particularly now. I mean, that's motherhood and apple pie, really. I mean, it's, it's trite to say that. So mm-hmm. I, I, you've just got to be absolutely relentless and not be pushed off course by events. You, you know, you've just got to keep hammering away. If you think the the strategic insight or thought is right and the structure right, and by structure I mean not just how you implement internally, the structure for you as an individual. You know, you yeah. know what, what, what it means. You know, whether I think controlled, listed companies, where you know, this comes back to my Cambridge. One of the things I got out of Cambridge, which was, you know, Robin Maris's book on the theory of managerial capitalism, which just highlighted for me the split between ownership and control. I think that is a problem. Yeah. I think you have to unify ownership and control. Mm. So anything you do. You know, you will be strategically strong, structurally strong, and persistent, and relentless, if you've you've cracked that problem as well, which is that you you have something at stake. You know, I'm a tremendous believer in again going back to Buffett. Buffett said many many years ago, you wouldn't give an institution a call on your stock for 10 years at zero cost. So why do you do it with management? You're absolutely yeah. right. And by that I mean management should put their money where their mouth is. You should have a stake in the business. You should go out and borrow, mortgage your family, your dog, your house, whatever. And that will give you, you know, a push and focus. I think I think that's critically important. Um mm. you know, quoting somebody else, Jorge Lehman at ABI three G or I remember him saying he doesn't believe in corporate governance. He believes that management should have ownership, that management then will act like owners, and that's what you really need to get yeah. good governance. And I think that's true. I think that's true. So put your money where your mouth is, to put it crudely.
0: Yeah, put your money where your mouth is, and then have that clear vision, and then strategically yes. play the long game.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and be and, and be relentless.
0: <laughs> be relentless. That's like the motto of the, the day. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Pleasure. Sir Martin. Well,
1: good, good luck um, to you, Yasmina. Good luck. Thank you
0: so much. All Do right. you have anything that you'd like to plug, for instance, with your work with S4 Capital or something that you're working on that's no, interesting? No, no, no,
1: it's fine. I mean, you know, okay. by all means, everybody follow S4. S4.L on the, on the London Stock Exchange.
0: Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Have a lovely day
1: and you thank you and good luck to you and thanks very much for this thank you god bless
0: well that's a wrap for today's episode of the young entrepreneurs journey podcast thank you so much sir martin for taking the time i really enjoyed this chat i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did if you got anything out of this episode whatsoever, I would highly encourage you to share it with a friend, share it with someone who would find it useful, share it with someone who would find it interesting. Word of mouth is everything. You can even think of like, what is your key takeaway from this interview and put that on your Instagram story, in which case I'll repost you if you tag me at RTE or pop it on your Facebook, your TikTok, your Snapchat or whatever funky, gizzy-gazzy platforms you got around. And definitely give it a five-star rating on iTunes and give it a review. I love reading through those. It really brightens up my day. And what that does is all of that then enables me to reach a broader audience, which is going to help me create even better content for you. So would really appreciate your help on that. But thank you so much for tuning in. With that said, hope you have a lovely day and I'll see you in the next episode. Do you ever feel like you put on a front to the world? I did an episode for this podcast with my friend, Will Nedder, a while back called How to Hack Yourself and Live Life to the Fullest. And we were talking all about how many, many people bottle up their emotions. They mask their true feelings and their true selves with a fake smile. Firstly, because going through hard times is not something that people typically want to hear about. And secondly, because they're afraid to show the world their true colors. One thing that I really love is that Will likes to ask people, how are you really doing? Not how are you doing, but how are you really doing? Because that then gives them the permission to open up, unburdened, and be unashamedly themselves and feel lighter and more liberated in the aftermath. And one day Will himself was actually going through a tough time, and he confessed to the person he was speaking to in that moment, I'm just low-key emotional, I just put on a front all the time. To which the immediate reply was, you should totally put that on a t-shirt. And boom, the low-key emotional streetwear brand was born. Will's passion for his brand truly oozes through in everything he does and he essentially created this as a call to authenticity. A lot of us put on a front for the world of how we want the world to think about us instead of who we really are. We hide these parts of ourselves from others out of a fear that we will be judged negatively by others or that we won't be accepted for the person that we really are. So I want to ask you, what's your front? At the end of the day, the Loki emotional brand is all about facing your truth. So if you want to wear clothes like a hoodie, a cap, a bikini that actually stand for something real and keep your hustle low-key, I have an exclusive offer just for you as my podcast listener. With me, you get a 10% discount using the discount code YAS10. That's Y-A-S-10 at the checkout at lowkeyemotional.com. All of the links and the details are in the show notes. I gotta say, I have their hoodie myself, it's extremely comfortable, it looks incredibly hip, I love wearing it, and so if you're one of the cool kids, this is most definitely for you. Again, you can get a 10% discount using the discount code YAS10, that's Y-A-S-10, at the checkout at lowkeyemotional.com, and you, too, will be rocking the street look in no time. Again, all of the details are in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Young Entrepreneur's Journey. This episode is recorded in London by Yasmina Ellens. The music for the show as well as the editing is done by Jake Babineau. If you've gotten anything out of this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend or liking it in the iTunes store. These things help more than anything else in reaching a broader audience and in turn will lead to better episodes for you to listen to. Thanks again and we'll see you in the next episode.